This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Today's case is one that's well known in Australia because it scandalized the headlines in 2014. Some of the headlines read, Chef killed, dismembered, and cooked girlfriend in Tenerife apartment. Some headlines were even worse because the murder involved people with alternative lifestyles, and the headlines were demeaning. This is the case of Marcus Folk and Mayang Prasetyo. Hello, this is Twisted Travel and True Crime. Welcome aboard. Thank you so much to you returning listeners for coming back, and for new listeners, just a heads up that I do record on a boat, so you'll hear some little boat noises in the background. Today's case is a gruesome one. It gets pretty graphic, so I wanted to let you know if you have a weak stomach, you may want to skip this one, but please come back next week. If you enjoy the podcast and want to keep hearing more, please rate, review, and or share the podcast with a friend. You listeners are top-notch, and you really help this small independent podcast grow. Okay, let's dive in. Hello, Professor uh, Good day. Is this a 24-hour electrician? Hey. Yeah, um, I've got a bit of a problem. Um, I was uh, cooking on my stove, stove, it's an electric stove, and um, the stockpot boiled over, dripped down, and um, got into the oven, and yeah. basically made the, this big bang, and then all my power yeah. turned off. Does it sound like something you'd be able to fix today? Yes, I think so, was the reply the electrician Brad Coyne made before making the drive to an apartment belonging to Marcus Folk and Mayang Prasetyo. Upon arrival, Brad walked into the foyer of the newly opened Tenerife apartment building and headed for apartment number 113. It was a Saturday evening, and many of the tenants were getting ready for their nighttime plans. For me, that would probably be pajamas, a beverage, and if I'm lucky, a murder show on my phone while my kids climb all over me. When the hard-working electrician arrived at the apartment complex, he walked past rows of letterboxes displaying abstract artwork. The foyer was only weeks old, but instead of smelling brand new, there was a strange odor hanging in the air. It got much worse when Marcus opened the door to apartment 3 on the ground floor. It was dark inside. You have to mind the smell, the young blonde man said as Brad walked in. Marcus made excuses claiming to be a chef and telling the electrician he'd been cooking pig's broth. Obviously, he said, as the smell is quite strong. He led the way to the small kitchen. The carpet under Brad's feet squelched as he followed, using a flashlight to light his way. The apartment felt creepy and smelled rancid. In the dim light, he made out an industrial-sized pot, a colander, rubber gloves, and bleach. The hair stood up on the back of his neck. The tenants, Marcus and Mayang, were married. Mayang, at age 27, was a beautiful Balinese woman with long, dark hair. When I say beautiful, I mean model beautiful. I'll put pictures of her and Marcus up on Twisted Travel and True Crime's Facebook and Instagram pages if you'd like to see them. Mayang was born on the southern tip of the Indonesian island of Sumatra in the province called Lampung. In the diverse metropolitan Indonesian culture, gender expression is no different than anywhere else. 
Indonesia is home to what they call Waria women. This is a community of transgender women who are rich with their own history and traditions. Mayang was one of these women. Indonesian warias are often described as a woman's soul in a man's body. It's a concept where aspects of both genders coexist. The term waria combines the Indonesian words for a woman, Juanita, and a man, Priya. This culture has been a part of Indonesia for a long time. A Spanish ethnologist made notes in his journals about it back in 1937, long before the term waria was coined. Although culturally recognized, the Waria communities continue to fight against violence and discrimination. Some are celebrities, but many more live hidden and dangerous lives in the back alleys of villages and cities nationwide. Local reports showed that attacks on Waria individuals and community gatherings continued to rise. Though their societal influence runs deep, Warias are still deemed shameful to families in Indonesia's less tolerant communities. This shame comes to a head when warriors are exiled by their families, committed as outcasts, and frequently forced into prostitution. For every warrior that experiences acceptance, there are more that are destitute. Stories of being stripped, having their heads shaved, and being chased and beaten are more commonplace than those celebrating their cultural influence. They often dream of moving somewhere where they will be more accepted, and this is how it was for Mayang. She was born as a little boy named Febri Andriancia, and was raised with two younger sisters. Her mother said that her son was always more like a girl, and she didn't mind who Febri was. She said growing up, all of Febri's closest friends were females. In grade 12, he even had a fight with a female friend over a guy. In his early 20s, Febri told his mother that he wanted to live as a woman. He was going to have a partial gender reassignment surgery in Thailand. Fabri's mother said that's what he wanted, and if he wanted something, he made it happen. He was pretty determined. This is when Fabri changed his identity. He chose the first name Mayang after an Indonesian singer, and the second name Prasetyo after a former girlfriend. Mayang was elegant, insightful, and a very hard worker. She made a living for herself and also provided for her family in Indonesia. She opened a dog-sitting service in Bali for a while, but she found she was far more successful as a sex worker. She eventually traveled to Australia, where she worked as a high-class escort. The trade was legal there, and the money was good. In Melbourne, she got work at a place called the Pleasure Dome, which was a brothel describing itself as the city's finest all-sex premium male and transsexual agency. She sent some of her earnings home to her mother and sisters. The money was good enough that she was able to support putting her sisters through school and support her mother and grandmother. The owner of the agency said that's where she met her partner, Marcus. He was a sex worker there, too. Marcus grew up on the outskirts of Ballarat in Australia. His father ran a local dojo, and Marcus would rise through the ranks to a black belt in karate. He was smart, nice, and quiet, but some people would say there was something different about him. He could be a little dark, and friends would describe seeing a flash of temper now and then. He was very intelligent and health conscious. He didn't smoke or drink and had a very good knowledge of nutrition and fitness. There was no suggestion that he was abusive or had any violent tendencies in his previous relationships, but he had been referred to psychiatric services in the past. 
In 2006, Marcus took an overdose of paracetamol tablets. For those of you who don't know, like I didn't, paracetamol is acetaminophen or Tylenol. He recovered from this, and according to his mother, he received a good shock from the experience, which were her words, not mine, and after this, she said he was determined to have a good life. I don't think things were sunshine and rainbows, though, because in 2007, Marcus began losing weight quickly and was unable to sleep. He was admitted to a psychiatric center for treatment for long-standing anxiety and depressive features that weren't improving. He was assessed as having moderate depression accompanied by severe sleep issues. He was given an antidepressant, which significantly improved his mood and sleep and appetite. He improved quickly, and his file was closed. His Facebook page showed him as an animal lover. He often wrote about the pros and cons of a vegan diet and told people he was a chef. According to Marcus' partner, before Mei Yang, she and Marcus had been living together for an extended amount of time. During that time, Marcus had accrued a debt of approximately $9,000 in credit cards, and he had no way to repay it. He was working as a part-time chef, but was unable to continue because he had ongoing mental health issues. It was at this time that he decided to become a male escort in Melbourne in order to repay his debt. He got a job at the Pleasure Dome, which again is where he met Mei Ying. They became friends and somehow came up with an agreement that he would assist her with getting a permanent partner visa for Australia, and she would help him within the transgender sex clubs in Melbourne and overseas in Europe and Asia. They would introduce each other as boyfriend and girlfriend. In August of 2013, the couple were living in Denmark. Mayang called her mother and asked for her blessing to marry her Australian boyfriend, Marcus. They married that same month in Copenhagen, then traveled to Indonesia so Marcus could meet his new wife's family. Mayang's mother said she thought Marcus was kind and loving, shy and reserved. He cooked for his new in-laws, ate local cuisine, and experimented with new ingredients. He was always interested in the spices they used for cooking. The newlyweds spent a couple weeks in Lampung before moving on to Bali for an extended vacation. Mayang was happy to introduce Marcus to her friends as her husband. On the other hand, Marcus never told his family of the marriage. They traveled throughout Asia and Europe, working for the sex trade through most of 2013 and 2014. When Marcus and Mayang returned to Australia, like many young professionals, they chose to live in Tenerife. It was a trendy area. The apartment complex they chose to live in was so new in early October 2014 that a giant banner still hung on the side of the building advertising units for rent and finishing touches were being put up inside. Marcus and Mei Yang were among the first to move in. The apartment manager thought Marcus was quiet and thoughtful. He did most of the talking, but Mayang had a great hold on English and was clear when she had questions or concerns. They decided on a ground floor apartment in which they kept their three newly acquired pugs. In the first couple of weeks, Mayang was frequently seen walking the dogs along the riverside paths and parks nearby. On the surface, they portrayed a young couple who had recently returned to Brisbane after working on a cruise line. He is a chef and she is a cabaret dancer. The reality was much different. The couple wasted no time advertising for sex work. Mayang's online advertisements read, Better in real life. Pictures are always real. Real deal, pre-op, functional, hot transsexual with a great fit and hot body to enjoy. 
Marcus advertised under the name Heath XL. He described himself as a young, sexy Australian boy, open to all kinds of people, ages, and backgrounds. Although they paid their bills with sex work, they seemed to want a different life. They had bought the three pugs with the desire to breed the dogs for profit. They both shared photos of each other together on Facebook, and by most accounts, they were a happy couple, but things weren't going smoothly. According to Marcus's ex-partner, Mayang had threatened Marcus that she would tell his family of their arrangement if he didn't carry out his side of the agreement, or if he chose to leave her. She also monitored his social media and was upset that he kept in touch with his former partner. The ex said that Marcus was depressed and had shared with her that he had considered suicide. Marcus must have been feeling the stress of their relationship, in addition to the long trips they took and the separation from his family. Not only were these things burdening him, but he was wanting and needing to go back to work. He felt like he needed some help. He visited a doctor in September of 2014 and told the physician he had just returned from overseas. He had a history of anxiety and depression, and his complaint was that he wasn't sleeping well and was feeling depressed and anxious. He asked for medication so he could think better throughout the day because he was about to start a job as a chef. He was prescribed an antidepressant, which he began taking. Around this same time, Mayang had conversations with a friend about going back to Indonesia for an extended stay. Less than 10 days later, on the afternoon of October 2, 2014, Marcus received a phone call from Mayang. At this time, Marcus was in the company of a client who he had just finished up with. The client reported that Mayang called Marcus to say she was on her way to their shared unit with a client of her own. Awkward. Marcus and his client decided to leave the apartment together to go for a walk. Marcus was still walking and talking with the same client when he received a second call from Mayang. The client said that Mayang was screaming at Marcus on the other end of the line. As soon as Marcus answered the phone, he became a different person and was no longer able to talk freely, openly, or honestly. Marcus told her that they were down by the river and they were just going for a walk and then hung up. Marcus then told the client that he needed to go back because his flatmate wanted some help cleaning up after their dogs. Marcus left his client and returned home. Most of the following information comes from the coroner's inquest on this case. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Later that evening, between 11.30 and midnight, people in the neighboring apartments heard arguing between Mayang and Marcus. It lasted 30 to 40 minutes and was starting to escalate to the point where the female was noted to be screaming. The male, later identified as Marcus, was seen sitting on the couch and looking straight ahead. He was not reacting at all to the screaming that was going on. Mayang was heard to call Marcus stupid and say things like, I can't believe you. The argument ended, but the neighbor awoke once again at 1.30 in the morning to hear more arguing. It wasn't as loud this time, and Marcus's voice couldn't be heard at all. 
The neighbor didn't hear any more arguing from the unit over the ensuing hours and days. On the morning of October 3rd, the unit manager, Mrs. Hughes, began to smell something in the hallway outside Marcus and Mayang's apartment. She walked back and forth over the course of the day to use the elevators, and she could tell that the smell was coming from their apartment. It was bad enough that she put an air freshener in the hallway. At six o'clock that evening, Marcus went to a supermarket nearby and purchased, among other things, gloves, bleach, a scrubbing brush, garbage bags, and wipes. Then Marcus called a taxi. He needed to go to the nearby hospital. The taxi driver noticed that he had a deep cut on his hand. When the driver asked Marcus about the cut, he said he'd been cutting onions and that the knife slipped. He also noted that the cut was very deep. Hospital records confirmed that Marcus had gone there and left with his hand bandaged around 9.30 that night. The hospital records stated that the reason for his cut was that he got in a fight with his girlfriend at 5 o'clock that day. He said she was holding a large chef's knife that he grabbed from her hand while they were fighting. Marcus had to have tendons in his hand repaired before being discharged. The next morning, Marcus went to another store and bought a meat cleaver. The apartment manager saw Marcus outside the unit and noticed his bandaged hand. When asked about it, he told her that he had to have surgery. She also noticed that the smell coming from his room was even worse than the day before. At 2 p.m., she sent Marcus a message telling him that he needed to do something about it. At about 3.30 p.m., she noticed the smell had changed to a burning smell. She knocked on the door, and she said it appeared as if Marcus had just returned home. He told her that he had gone out and accidentally left his pot of stock on, and it must have burnt dry. Later that evening is when he engaged the services of the emergency electrician that I told you about in the beginning, but I'm going to go into a little bit more detail. When Brad, the electrician, arrived at Marcus's unit, he noticed Marcus had a bandage around his left hand. When asked about it this time, Marcus said something like, My psycho ex-girlfriend tried to attack me with a knife, which I grabbed and cut my hand. When Brad entered the unit, Marcus said to him, You'll have to excuse the smell. I'm cooking some pig's broth. Brad thought this was odd and later described the smell as putrid and strong and smelling a bit like dog food. Brad needed access to the main switchboard, so the apartment manager was contacted to help with this. At about 8.15, the apartment manager and her husband met with Marcus and Brad in the foyer of the complex. Marcus explained the situation to the apartment manager, and they proceeded to the main switchboard, made adjustments, then went to the unit. Marcus opened the door for Brad to enter, but he tried to stop the apartment manager from entering. He told her that she needed to give him seven days' notice, but she countered, telling him that because of the electrical fault being a safety issue, she could and would enter. She noticed blood and other damage throughout the unit. Her husband took a series of photographs of the damage and some pictures of blood that was on the floor. Marcus told them that the blood on the carpet was from the cut on his hand. All three visitors were feeling uneasy and they blew out of there faster than a hairpiece in a hurricane and immediately called the police. The police came in just 10 minutes, responding to what they considered to be a welfare check. They spoke initially with the apartment manager at the front of the complex, then made their way to Marcus's apartment. They knocked on the door and asked about Mayang's whereabouts. Marcus told them that he had a fight with her and that she had run away and not yet returned. 
He then told police that his guess was that she had gone back to Indonesia, explaining to them that she was here on a visitor visa, but was in the middle of applying for a partner visa. It was clear he didn't want to let them into the apartment because he had stepped out into the hallway in order to speak with them. The officers informed Marcus that they intended to enter the unit without a warrant because of the strange smell and reports of blood in the unit. Marcus's first response was belligerence. He said that obviously she's not there. The apartment manager had already been inside. When they insisted, he lost some of the color to his face and then asked the police if, before they entered, he could secure his dogs. They were inside the unit running around loose. This seemed reasonable. Based on the information the officers had at the time, so they had no issue with the request. Marcus then re-entered his unit, quickly locking the door behind him. This seemed odd to the officers. As they listened at the doorway, they heard what they thought was metallic sounds from within the unit. Then it got quiet. They thought it was the sound of the kennel being closed, but then the apartment manager's husband yelled to the officers that Marcus had run from the back of the unit and had rabbited over the back fence. The officers took up chase. The apartment manager's husband gave them directions into the general direction Marcus had run. A search ensued. Fifteen officers were called in to help. When Marcus wasn't found right away, a dog squad was brought in. As the dogs were searching, the apartment manager used her master key to allow officers into the apartment. Inside the unit was a large metal pot that was on the kitchen floor. It contained liquid from which two toes and two human feet protruded. The first officer to see it thought it was a sick prank, but then he saw the large pool of blood on the floor of the kitchen and determined that they really were human remains. Next, they found a large black garbage bag next to the washing machine. It contained Mayang's torso cut into pieces. The officers immediately left the apartment calling for backup and secured the crime scene. While the search took place inside the unit, efforts to locate Marcus were continuing in the local neighborhood. At 9.51 p.m., an officer deployed his dog named Zuma, who strongly indicated to the presence of a track. A second dog alerted to the same track. Zuma followed the track up to an underground garage and then up onto a short ramp and to the door of a small room. The door there was closed and locked. After clearing behind several vehicles in the car park, Zuma made his way to the other side of the small room where the officers found an open door. Inside the room were a number of garbage bins and Zuma indicated to the first bin on the right as he entered the room. After clearing the remaining bins, the officer opened the bin indicated by Zuma and saw Marcus lying inside. He had taken a knife from his kitchen into the bin and proceeded to slit his wrists and then cut his own throat. He was unresponsive and covered in blood. At 10 p.m., a call was made to EMS, who arrived on the scene by 10.06. But attempts to revive Marcus were futile. He was declared deceased at 10.18 p.m. An autopsy showed that the cut he had made in his neck had partially cut the jugular vein, resulting in an air embolism. I wasn't sure what this meant, so I did a little research. An air embolism is a bubble or bubbles of gas trapped within the blood vessels. In this case, air got in his jugular vein. The bubbles at some point cut off the blood supply to a particular area of the body. Maybe this was the heart or the brain. 
The affected organs are starved of oxygen and die, eventually causing death to the person. This embolism was ultimately responsible for Marcus' death, rather than blood loss. Mayang's autopsy showed that her body had been divided into portions, with the torso in three parts. The first part was her head and upper neck. The second part was her lower neck and upper torso without her limbs. Lastly, her lower torso was found without the legs attached. The remaining body parts fit physically together, showing that they were all from the same person. Multiple bones and tissue fragments from the stockpot were present. However, the bones were soft and splintered, as they would be due to Marcus's attempt to cook them. The doctor noted that when the body was dismembered, there were no signs of bleeding, meaning that Mayang was already dead when the butchering began. Stab wounds were found on the right side of her neck, as well as on her face and towards the back of her head. The wounds on the side of her neck would have caused a fatal injury because it had cut through the trachea and carotid arteries. Mayang's Indonesian mother said she has forgiven the man who murdered, then reportedly dismembered and cooked the body parts of her oldest child. Mayang's family petitioned to have her body sent back to Indonesia. Immediately after the murder-suicide, Mayang's mother reached out to Mr. Volk's family, asking for forgiveness for both their son's death and that of her daughter. My message for Marcus' family is, let's forgive each other, she said. Please forgive Febri if he did things that angered Marcus or his family. I forgive Marcus for what he has done to Febri. I hope Marcus's mom and the whole family will be strengthened in this difficult time. Marcus' family was shocked when they heard the news. In addition to coming to terms with the grief and sudden loss of their son, his parents also had to absorb the confronting details of his life and death being so publicly exposed. When reporters came knocking at the family property in the days following the deaths, Volk's clearly distressed father, Peter, chased them away. Media interest was high, as you would expect, but they were told in no uncertain terms that they were not welcome, and that, in my opinion, is completely fair. What's sad about this case is that it may have been preventable. Marcus had no history of violence. He was trying to medicate himself knowing that something was wrong, but many medications for depression don't work right away. Perhaps, and this is only speculation, perhaps Marcus was at an increased risk for mental health disorders such as depression and anxiety due to experiences of stigma, prejudice, and discrimination. That, in addition to him keeping secrets from his family and Mayang's threats to expose him, are what pushed him to murder her and then kill himself. I'm not giving him excuses. He definitely is a murderer and if he hadn't killed himself, he should have been prosecuted for murder. What I know for sure is that Mayang's life was not easy, but even with the hand she was dealt, the last thing she deserved was dying the way she did. Thank you, my twisted friends, for your ears. I'd like to take a moment to thank a couple of specific listeners for their kindness. Thank you to P 77 who says, Great podcast, very interesting stories, new favorite podcast. Thank you. Also, I'd like to thank Clark N. for reaching out and giving me some great feedback and encouragement. Thank you both so much. To all of you, I wish for you only fair winds and following seas. I don't know if you guys can hear that or not, but that's raindrops on the deck, so we're going to have to take a pause. Makes for some really good sleeping, though. <laughs>